Podcast. We had never had a year with a loss. And even that first year where I made $3,200 as a college kid eating, you know, like one Subway sandwich over the span of three days, you can make that money stretch out. And so I would prepay my rent, take care of all my bills, and I lived this debt-free life where I made enough to do what I needed to do. Hi, and welcome to Deep Leadership. I'm your host, John Rennie. Well, I hope all is well with you today. It is another beautiful day here in North Carolina. And this episode is brought to you by our sponsors, the Fraternity of Excellence, the Sasquatch Flag Company, and Jeremy Clevenger Fitness. These sponsors help me bring these shows to you each and every week, so I encourage you to click on their links below and check them out. I have another great show lined up for you today, but before we get started, I just want to remind you to check out the leadership books I've written on either Amazon or my website, johnsrenny.com. This year, I'm offering a new way to purchase all of my books for a discount. I've bundled the books into what I call the Qualified Leadership Series, and you get all three books for 15% off the individual prices. This offer is only available on my website, so check it out if you're looking to step up your leadership game this year. Also, I want to remind you that Deep Leadership is ranked as a top 100 management podcast in the U.S. and in the U.K., and I wanted to thank each and every one of you for listening in each week and sharing these episodes with your friends. You have helped this podcast grow into a top-performing show, so thank you very much. Well, that is it. Today, we're going to be talking about what it takes to build and sustain a successful business, and my guest is Eric Bort. Eric started his business clearly trained at just 19 years old, and he has been growing it profitably for over 25 years. In this discussion, Eric shares some of the secrets to his success which involved hard work, living within your means, learning through doing, and taking advantage of opportunities. He also shares how he delegates and leads his team to ensure continued success. This was a fascinating conversation with a truly successful entrepreneur. If you're ever wondering how and why some people succeed in business while others fail, this is your episode. So are you ready to dive in? Let's get started. Welcome to Deep Leadership. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former Cold War submarine officer who spent 20 plus years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Are you ready for some real world actionable advice from John as well as his expert guests? I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. The show starts right now. Welcome to the Deep Leadership Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Eric Bork. Eric is the founder and CEO of Clearly Trained, an e-learning agency started in 1998 at the age of just 19. Over the years, both his mindset and business grew to a point where the freelancer model no longer worked, and he started hiring. His success is due in part to treating his staff well, allowing them to be adults, and using their creative insights to solve the toughest challenge. And I'm excited to have him on the show to talk about the leadership lessons he's learned over 25 years of building this successful business. So, Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks. Appreciate it. Yeah, this is, uh, it's good to have you on the show because this story is pretty amazing. Um, uh, you know, for, before we dive into your story, tell us a little bit about Clearly Trained. What do you do in your company? I, we, we mentioned it's a it's a e-learning agency. What kind of services do you provide and what makes your company so unique? Yeah, sure. So uh, I started Clearly Trained a long, long time ago. Uh, I'm now in my mid-40s and it seems like it seems like forever ago. So I started off freelancing 
and got into e-learning at a very early point, uh, early 2000s. And so to this day, we provide custom e-learning for, I'd call it like higher end style clients, clients that are passionate about their culture, clients that want to provide something a little bit above and beyond, whether it's humor, storytelling, simulation, that sort of approach. So a lot of character animation, custom video work, interaction, and we've even gone so far as doing mobile apps and all sorts of stuff like that. So we cover many different industries from food service, franchise, medical, healthcare, all sorts of different things. Uh, but again, in the end, it tends to be those Fortune 100, Fortune 500 style organizations that really have that passion for their culture and like to bring some of that brand into their team activities and and really show some, I don't know, excitement for the people that work for them. There are some companies that don't take that route and it tends to be a little bit of an afterthought. So we take a lot of joy and pride in bringing those more interesting pieces of those companies inward. What makes what would you say makes your company stand out from other your, your competitors? I'd say we're we're passionate about the creative side. There are a lot of organizations out there that truly are commodities, uh, the churn and burns, cranking out the PowerPoint style pieces here and there. And we are, I'd say, a little more obsessed about the story and the quality of impact. If you've ever watched a great movie and there are explosions in the first 20 seconds, or you read a great book and you couldn't put it down after the first chapter, like there's a reason they give out those freebies or you watch the trailer, right? So it's to build up that sense of commitment, sense of interest, engagement, and all those things. And so we found that with adult learners, they care too. And we found this massive drop-off. I ran a K-12 nonprofit for a long while, and we'd give the kids the hardest challenges, the most exciting storylines, the best interactions, all these things with a cool, uh, you know, futuristic or scientific, whatever, like just really cool looking visuals. And then when it came to adults, it was bare minimum and they were bored. And I don't know about you or what, what age you are inside your head, but I'm not in my 40s. I, you know, like I have the interest, same interests as when I was a kid to some extent. I still like to be entertained. I still like to be engaged. And so I think that's really what differentiates us in particular is that we care about those elements. It's important to us that we bring that back into the day-to-day -day training of adult learners. I think it makes a lot of sense. I mean, we're used to being entertained at in everything else we do in our lives. And if our, if our onboarding videos or our customer videos are not entertaining and engaging, then people aren't going to pay attention to it. Yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So like, I got to understand, I got to figure this out and this is kind of interesting and I never really thought about it. I've, I've, I've known you a while, but I've, I never realized you started your company at 19 years old. You started doing this work at 19. What kind of upbringing did you have that gave you the tenacity to think that you could start something at 19 that you'd be doing 25 years later? I know I started my business. I was 49 years old. I was a seasoned professional. I knew this industry inside and out. You were 19. And when I was 19, I was still in college trying to figure out my life. I mean, yeah. tell us a little about your upbringing and, and, and what what sort of elements that you have maybe in your life that made you think that you could do this? So I was, I, I'd say I was one of those kids that wasn't told what not to do in the same way that I wasn't told what to do. And so a lot of my childhood was me 
creating my days. And so I would, I would get up when the sun rose, I'd go out into the woods with a machete, sometimes a can of gasoline and a box of twine and some clippers into the woods and I would build forts. And so I had this whole like village of forts. I built a swing set and they had benches, uh, you know, th things up in the air. And this was kind of a swampy Northern Ohio area. We had pond, a pond out back, fossils to dig up, uh, hundreds of acres of woods back before all the, the developments kind of took over. It was, it was, so it was this life of independence and life of adventure. And so in that respect, I had a lot of freedom and there was really no restriction. So when my friends came over and 20 feet into my backyard, they'd kind of have a breakdown or their shoe would get stuck in the mud. That was just, that was just foreign to me. So that, again, that sense of, you know, like they, they'd be like, I'm going back. I'm not, I'm not going to attempt whatever it is we're about to attempt. And it was just, I guess that sense of adventure was normal to me. And so as I grew up, I'd say a uh, strong work, work ethic was one of the major things that I had as a takeaway from childhood. It was a, a fairly physical labor intense childhood. Uh, but again, one of, one of very little conflict. Uh, it, it was very stable in a lot of senses. And I started working when I was 12 at a greenhouse. So I lived in Avon, Ohio. It was the greenhouse themed uh, township. And so there were just greenhouses everywhere. So I, one of my friends at school, their parents ran a greenhouse. And I started my first job, I think it was $4.25 an hour. And I'd work maybe three or four hours a weekend planting flowers, picking tomatoes or doing whatever. And so that work ethic rolled with me. They started a coffee shop. So I was opening and closing at the age of 15 at 6 a.m. shift, baking whatever needed to be baked, closing down the register. And I, at one point I asked them, I said, are you, are you allowed to let a 15-year-old do this? <laughs> but the, the trust was built. And again, the work ethic was there. And I kept getting that feedback. Most people leave or quit and you always finish the jobs that you start. And that was a recurring theme. And I mean, I'm, I'm going quite a ways here from 12 to, to 19, but at one point in college, we sitting around with some friends that are like, we should start a business and nobody actually got up and did anything about it. Yeah. And I went home that night, you know, with kind of my dial up modem set up in my, my uh, college apartment overlooking the, emergency room of the hospital next door. Uh, you know, it was just like this, this great classic setup of a kind of broke college student. And I just started, I went to job forums and I started digging in and this was right before, you know, 2000. And so the internet was hot and anyone who kind of claimed that they could do something was as good as tired back then. And so, yeah, I worked my way up from that $4.25 to $5.50 to a $9 job. And suddenly I'm working for myself and I can charge 35 bucks an hour. And I was like, that's pretty interesting. That's a lot more than $9. Right? So it, it intrigued me. And um, because I didn't know what wasn't possible, I just dove in without really thinking about it. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So it seems like you had a little bit of experience being around entrepreneurs, whether, you know, at the greenhouses, the coffee shops or what have you. Did your, your parents, were they entrepreneurs as well? Or did they live a or, or did you, did you have family that were entrepreneurs or were they yeah. people that did, you know, work normal jobs or what have you? Early on, uh, my mom to help kind of supplement the family income ran a basket company. So she'd go to like craft fairs and craft shows and would weave baskets. And so I'd sit there with her and, you know, again, I learned some freedom doing that. My brother and I would make certain things and sell them. And so we learned how to sell things and market ourselves and do all that sort of stuff. 
both of my grandfathers were entrepreneurs. One owned a, an airline, I believe, and I've never known much more about that. Uh, he lived, I think it was in Pennsylvania, and my other owned a meatpacking plant. Okay. And so there used to be a Bort meatpacking plant in Youngstown, Ohio, out in, out in Canfield. And so uh, he would spend his later years helping Russian organizations build their meatpacking plants. So he was always flying back to Russia, which was the origin of uh, where most of my family came from. And and do that. So yeah, I would say I skipped a little bit of a generation, but they were both entrepreneurs and self-employed. Okay, so there was some there there was some feeling at least, or at least some experiences where you say, okay, th this is a potential career path. But mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, so what you know, um, what was it like in the beginning? You mentioned you know just sort of thirty five dollars an hour, kind of more of a freelancer. Um, how did it how did it grow? What was it like in the beginning? And then how did it grow and how did it evolve? So I'm kind of interested in the evolution. I mean, not many people start, uh, not many businesses last 25 years. I, I put it that way. So what were some of the the maybe some of the big milestone changes that you had over the years? I'll I'll start with my attitude and and that one, I think I got I got my phrase a little bit later on, but it really was a mentality of anything's possible. Mm. Oh, you need to hire somebody? Well, I don't know how to do that. Give me two hours. <laughs> and I'd go look up how to do it. And then I would go and do it. And that was really all there was to it. And because I reinforced that over and over again, that was just the way that I grew. And there was a little bit of stumbling. Like I said, there, there's some lack of intentionality on where I went with my career and where I went with the business. But as I started off, there wasn't really this inhibition that it wasn't possible. It was just a matter of communicating, coming to an agreement, having that discussion, and then building the thing, whatever that was. So that was um, that. That was the majority of my attitude towards towards that aspect. Was there at any point that you felt like it it wasn't going to be successful long term? That you were going to walk away? That you were going to do something else? That there were obstacles in your way that just were insurmountable? Or was it always just you were figured figured a way around it? I was kind of having that discussion today. We had never had a year with a loss that wasn't profitable. And so that wasn't on my mind. And even that first year where I made $3,200 as a college kid eating, you know, like one Subway sandwich ever, over the span of three days, you can make that money stretch out. And so I would prepay my rent, take care of all my bills. And I lived this debt-free life where I made enough to do what I needed to do. And that second year, maybe I made like six grand or something. It took a long while. I didn't have, you know, the Twitter bros were backing me up, showing me how to bring in $100,000 recurring revenue every month. The internet just wasn't as much of a thing as it was today. And I wasn't reading uh, business books or any of that. So yeah, it was kind of this blind positivity and, and the superpower of just showing up every day that I'd say got me the furthest in, in my career and in my business. I love it. That's great. You know, because I hear entrepreneurs or, you know, potential entrepreneurs that you've got to get seed money. You've got to get, you know, <laughs> you, you got to build up all this, you know, uh, money before you start. You got to build a team. You got to have, you know, all this, you know, and VC investors and all this stuff. But you said, hey, we made money from day one and uh, and we did it small and then we built from there. Yeah. Yeah. So it it, it took a little bit of time, but through networking. I remember the flyer. It's one of those little chain reaction things. Like I saw a flyer, I met a guy, he worked for someone else. And that led me to my first biggest job, which was 
the Center of Science and Industry in Columbus, Ohio. So they were opening up a new children's museum and I got in with one of their other contractors making kiosks for kids. So those little museum kiosks, touchscreen, science activities and all that good stuff. So that led to another project, which was virtual knee surgery, which uh, was released, I believe, in 2003. And this project where you go in and pick up the tools and chop up somebody's knee, cut them open, do all this stuff. So I was the programmer, the animator, uh, had help with the writing. They funded it. We launched this thing and it went viral. And so back then, I don't know how common that was for things to go viral, but we were getting millions and millions of people to this single activity that we had hosted. We kept upgrading the server because it kept going down and all these things. But at the end, end of the day, it led to more media exposure than I ever thought. As a 23-year-old at this point, we got in every major style magazine, interviews from Japan. I, had a, I just had a stack of these awards and all this stuff. And oddly, I never went for an award ever again. Like it basically fueled the growth of the company up to the point that we ended up winning Starbucks from a contact of a contact who was a fan of that project. Same with Lowe's Home Improvement. So by the time we started getting those types of clients on is when I uh, made my first hire. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. So what, so, so it was when you landed a number of these big clients, you decided that you needed to hire. So what was that like going from kind of doing a lot of things yourself or with you know, other freelancers potentially to having your own employees and, and then, you know, what was that, what was that like for you as a, as an entrepreneur going from kind of a one man shop to multiple, multiple people and where now you're responsible for them, hiring them, motivating them, paying them, make sure they get paid and make sure they have enough work. What was that like? Was it scary? Was it easy? Or was it just like everything else you do? You just sort of figure yeah. it out on the way. <laughs> no, it was, it was it was nauseating. I'd say for about two weeks, it scared the crap out of me. And I felt nauseous. Like that that was where I was at. And I had one friend or two, and I remember calling them up. We're actually still uh, client friends and have a partnership for them to this day. So someone who's been with me for a long time, I called him up and asked him about that. And I'm sure he had some good advice and whatever it was, it's like it still needed to get done. But yeah, it was that sort of oppressive feeling of your life is in my hands. And I think we all, as in that leadership role, tend to make some overbearing assumptions on how important that job is to other people. And I'm thinking from the other perspective, ah, if I lost my job, whatever, I'd find a new one. And so I, it's it's a challenging balance for me to not overdo it in how much I project or care about the, uh, the individual I'm hiring, but yeah, I don't, you know, you don't want to walk up like your life is in my hands. It's not that serious of a deal, but it is definitely a step in responsibility compared to flat out just taking care of myself and my family. And so that was another thing that mitigated the risk early on was I wasn't married and I didn't have kids. And so talking, you know, to someone like you who was married and had kids while they started the business, right? There's different levels of risk tolerance. And I think that took it down quite a, quite a bit. So I actually had a, uh, my first employee and that fizzled out, I'd say around 2005 or six, ended up taking a break. And then in 2008, started hiring for real. Not like that wasn't for real, but it's like, it was kind of the training wheels of what is this? How do I manage this? What's payroll? All these new things that I had to sort out. And 
you know, even just negotiating the job, you know, specifics of the job, the salary benefits, all those good things. So, um, yeah, in 2008, it started that, that first hire from that year is still with me to this day. So we've had some, uh, some great picks and people sticking with us for a long time. That, I mean, that's, first of all, just, it's, it's, a you know, my hat's off to you that you've had long-term employees. It says something about your leadership style. How would you describe you as a leader? What's, what's your style, would you say? In general, I'd say I have a very strong customer service mindset, and I don't think that differs necessarily for the people on staff with me. I, I genuinely care, and I understand there's, a, there's emotional caring and there's the getting it done caring that's compassionate and may not seem compassionate, or I understand a decision needs to be made. And so not everybody's opinion weighs in on this one, but it does over here. And it's really that balance. Is someone feeling abused because they're so good at their job that all that work seems to be gravitating towards them? How do we balance that out and give other team members opportunities to show what they're made of and show what they can do? And I, I've noticed one thing, which is it tends to be the more responsibility you allow people to embrace, the sooner they rise up and really show the team what they're made of. And some organizations stifle that. They don't ask people their opinion. They don't use their brains for, you know, where they're at. They have their own experiences and can add to it. And what I noticed was I was hiring people that were way better than me and I, and I loved it. Maybe that irritates other people, but I really gravitated more of just the business management side of things and the customer service side of things. So I was a developer. I was a programmer. I did all those things. And so in that respect, I related very deeply to the people that I hired because it was just another person who did what I did. I was the one who was having to kind of figure out all the project management aspects, the customer service aspects and all that. So, you know, in the, in respects to how I managed my team, it just kind of made sense because it was very close to how I managed myself. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Leadership skills are like any other skills. You need to practice them to get better at them. Best-selling leadership author John S. Rennie knows this. That's why he's written a new book called You Have the Watch. It's a guided journal for leaders designed to take you through an entire year of leadership training. By the end of the year, you will master 50 of the most important leadership skills. If you want to have a greater impact on the results and people in your organization, go to youhavethewatch.com and pick up your copy today. This episode is brought to you by the Fraternity of Excellence. The Fraternity of Excellence is an online and real-world community for men who are looking to improve in all areas of their lives. The men of FOE are working together to become better husbands, fathers, and leaders at work and in their communities. They live by a simple philosophy, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Now, I've been a member for more than three years, and for me, I finally found a brotherhood of men that I was missing from my time in the military. Now, I love being around guys who are dedicated to becoming a better version of themselves. So if you're interested in becoming a man of excellence as well, go to fraternityofexcellence.com, or you can reach out directly to me to learn more. 
This episode is brought to you by the Sasquatch Flag Company. The Sasquatch Flag Company is a family-owned business in New England that builds hand-carved American flags from seasoned white pine. Each flag is hand-built, and each star on the flag is hand-hammered and chiseled. No two flags are alike. They offer a variety of flag designs to honor the police, military, firefighters, dispatchers, and search-and-rescue personnel, to name a few. These stunning handmade flags look great in an office, a studio, the back porch, or above the fireplace mantle. They make the perfect gift for the veteran, first responder, or patriot in your life. Now, I love these flags, and I've been giving them as gifts for years, and I was a customer long before they became a sponsor of the show. I can't recommend them enough, so if you're looking for that perfect, uniquely American make gift to give away or if you want to treat yourself go to sasquatchflags.com and get your order in today this episode is brought to you by jeremy clevenger fitness as a high performing leader you know that leadership isn't about telling people what to do it's about leading by example and for most people the one area that they're lacking when it comes to leading by example is their health and fitness by improving your health and fitness every other area of your life improves but how do you get and stay fit as a busy leader well you do what you've always done you hire the best person for the job don't struggle on your own put jeremy clevenger on your team jeremy will work with you to take your physique mindset nutritional habits, and more to the next level with his step-by-step, all-inclusive coaching program. Now, I've worked with Jeremy for the past year, and I'm in the best shape of my life. If you want to step up your game, reach out to Jeremy at apexperformancesystems.com to find out more and get your initial consultation scheduled with him today. One of the things that a lot of entrepreneurs have a hard time doing is, is letting go, especially when they're a technical expert like you were or are, I should say, um, it's hard to let go. So you, it's your baby. You started this thing from from the ground up. And a lot of times, uh, a lot of entrepreneurs hold things close to their vest. They don't delegate. They don't get people involved uh, with the decision-making because they don't want anything to harm their baby. And that actually, you know, basically stunts their growth because you are limited to the skills and experiences of one person versus a team yeah. Um, it sounds like you said one thing that that kind of stood out, which is I hire people smarter than me, right? And you weren't and you weren't bothered by that. Was it the same as far as delegating responsibility? Were you did you find yourself easily doing that, or did that take some time where you're able to let go of a few things that you held on tightly to? I think at first it, it my my first experience was right, hold on. I don't know that this person and handle what I've had three years of experience with. Like certain things I never really delegated. I do this day, I do these days, but not not back then. Uh, and actually that lack of delegation in some respects created the company culture. And it created a really unique structure that I that I've rarely seen in other creative agencies. And so there's a little story behind that. And what what ended up happening was. And it's not like it's not for lack of trust, but I would not have my developers ever directly contact a client or talk to them. What I noticed when I hired people on is that developer would have to manage the scripts, record the voiceover, sometimes themselves, answer you know back and forth emails, bug bug checks, uh, errors, revisions. And they're spending thirty, forty percent of their time basically being a project manager, mm. thinking like that's just for for a you know, high paid developer with a lot of capacity for creative output, having them spend their time being a project manager did not make sense. And so what I ended up doing was creating this buffer where I handled everything 
in that respect. And by the time it got to them, they'd basically get zero emails a day. We'd have our one or two meetings. Everyone was kind of set off and doing what they were doing. And as long as people were checking in and showing their work, that was about as complex as it got. And so I, my goal was to really have this stress-free environment where I handled and managed all the client interactions. If somebody got heated or somebody had an issue, they really didn't have access to the rest of my team. And so I can see how that's not scalable. Like I can see plenty of flaws in that system, but for the size of our company, which was around four developers for the majority of the life of the company, it worked just fine. You know, I don't, you couldn't scale that to a thousand people, but for, for what we are, uh, it worked really well. It makes a lot of sense. I, I think um, one, of, one of the things that stood out for me is you, you identify early on the frustrations with creative types, right? They don't want to deal with all the emails, the distractions, the, the problems. They want to be creative. They want to do what they're, they're really good at. And so I, I imagine they saw that as a benefit. Like, like, I really like working for Eric because I get to focus on what I love to do. And I think that, and I'm not frustrated with, with all of the, you know, the customer side of, 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 of you know, the frustrating part of, of the business. So I imagine in some, in some respect, it, it was a good place to work for creative types. Yeah. And I have the full capacity to frustrate people. Like that's, that's totally in my wheelhouse. So I, I will make decisions, contradict myself, come back, admit that. And it's just like, that's to me, that's that messier side of leadership. I have the best intentions. And when I get feedback, I make adjustments, right? There, it's not anything that needs to be overcomplicated. How would I like to be treated? If I were here to do a certain job and I was constantly distracted, I'll tell you that I'm not going to be as productive. And so when we're paid based on that productive output, right, those decisions uh, just made sense. And so since then, we've had other additions to the team, an operations manager, another project manager, and so on. So we've gotten a little more efficient. We've gotten more uh, process oriented and all that, which was a pretty big change over the last two years. But in essence, the hierarchy of you don't need to deal with the clients has stayed the same. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, that's good. I mean, I, it seems like, you know, what I'm get a sense of is that, you know, there was an evolution to the company, you know, over, over the years from, from one person being the creative and managing the clients to, you know, to where you're freelancers to where now you have a team and now you're, now you're having more project management. So it's almost like, you know, as the, as the company evolved, you evolved your business model. Yeah. And that was a late game flip. So that happened when I was in my, I'd say 4041. I really hadn't read any business books up until that point. I, I was not part of a business community. Wow. I didn't really have friends that I hung out that talk business. Like we talked a lot of e-learning. I ran a local group in Louisville and we'd have monthly meetings and we got to meet a lot of the local uh, big businesses in the area. But business was not something that people really talked about in that capacity. I was constantly surrounded by people who worked for other businesses. Mm. They didn't necessarily grow their business. And so I really never had that particular perspective. One or two mentors that you know, popped their heads in every once in a while. But we really never got to the point where it's like, hey, let's tear this thing down and build it back up yeah. the, the right way, right? Which changes definitions based on who you talk to. But that's part of the exploratory process of what's working and what's not working. And so that's been, yeah, it's been a, a years plus process of building these systems and basically getting everything out of my head. And so that was the big discovery is like, hey, Eric blows up in a bus accident or something. Mm. 
where's the company at? What do we have like a two week runway before everything falls apart? Where are those contacts? What's the process for this? All that stuff. And so it was, uh, it was actually at the request, one of the employees brought that up and it was a good point, right? So when you hear a good point and you've got the capacity to do something about it, not saying I jumped on that right away, but it, it ended up happening. And that's really the process we're in right now is, is really sorting that out. Very interesting. Uh, I love it. I mean, you're, you know, a lot of people started thinking about that on day one <laughs> or, or day or year one, I would say. Year 23 is when I started. They're like, hey, let's put together a contingency plan in case Eric gets hit by a bus. <laughs> so and there's, no right, there's no right way. I think that's the, that's the message there. Would I advocate for that? Not necessarily, but like there's no, there's no particular right way. Maybe that goes back to stop being a perfectionist and just try something. Yeah, and just do something and see how far you get until whatever something breaks off, and then you go fix it, and you realize why it broke, and maybe you're more proactive after that, and you're looking ahead a little bit further. I love it. I love it. That's probably one of the biggest changes I had to make going from corporate life to entrepreneurial life was was to just let it go and let and let things evolve and and not be so obsessed with. Because, you know, when you work at a big company, you, you have all the safeguards built up, you have the procedures, you have the processes, you know, um, when you do it on your own, you have none of that. And so I have some of my employees who I've hired from big companies that are like, oh, we need an employee manual. And we, I still have a rough draft of an employee manual at the bottom of my inbox, because to me, I just feel like I, I didn't, I really didn't need it because all yeah. my employees know me. I know them intimately. There isn't there. There is no reason to have an employee handbook at this point, right? So it, it's more, you know, we have I have personal relationships with with all my employees, so I don't see a need for that. So it's like um, it's 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 actually liberating in a way not to have to be controlled by all these systems and processes that you were used to in a big company. It's kind of it's it's been a it's been a lot of fun for me being kind of almost freed from some of the shackles of of big company life. And you never had those. <laughs> you never had that. that well, you know, and that, that's what that's like. Like not working for a company is not necessarily the case because I work for many companies, right? It's just right. that I, I have that I have that added level of if they fire me or if I quit, I've still got a job. And so I actually find more security in the entrepreneur life than I, you know, necessarily would have being an employee at another organization. Yeah, multiple levels of of protection in that respect. I think like what you're talking about, it's kind of, it's like, why do they have that sign up that says, you know, wear shirts because some person walked in the store with their shirt off. That's right. Exactly. And, it, and it is a little bit of a reactionary way to run a business. But to your point, that can be part of the joy of running the business and the freedom. And I find that my clients like, especially at those big multi-billion dollar scale levels, how flexible we are and how quickly we can move. We get things done in three days to six days that they're used to take in nine months. Hmm. How's that, how's that even possible? Well, cause I'm making the decisions and choosing to skip this process over here, which I've got boundary issues. I'm working on it. <laughs> you know, and that's, I'd say that's one of the bigger uh, criticisms from the team and rightly so is yeah, we can do that. Anything's possible. Let's go get it. Let's do it. And then before we know it, we're, you know, swamped with, a fairly insurmountable task, but that's my job to get us out of that as well. If we need to right. scale up or find other vendors or, you know, do the thing, it's, it, it tends to be based off of my good or bad decision somewhere in the game, but it's, it's just, yeah, that, that flexibility I think is a really cool part of 
being, I don't know, your own leader in that respect, like running your own company. Yeah, I, I agree with you. The one of the things examples I, I worked for four years at one company trying to get them to be able to get credit card orders, to be able to take credit card credit card orders for small jobs to ship right away. And so a lot of people have P cards, companies have P cards, they just have money to spend in maintenance and they can spend the money, get the get the order in quick. <clears throat> of course, you're in a big company, there's well, you know, there's a process standard process for that and what have you go through all this. So it took me four days in my company to put it in place. So yep. four years versus four days, you know. So the freedom of that was one of those eye-opening moments like, oh, the the capabilities of small businesses and what they can do compared to the big guys is that, you know, we may not have the the resources and we may not have, you know, teams all over the world, but we can move a lot faster than some of these big companies just because of their size, they can't move fast, you know, and that's been the yeah. fun part of dancing around my competitors when they're trying to figure things out. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's it is we can innovate quicker and we can make decisions and there's really no one stopping us from making the decision as long as we're clearly communicating with our team and with our clients and they know what's going on. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty wild what, what, what we can do. Like last year we ramped up a, an additional 30 person team in a matter of weeks and got somewhere around four to 500 training courses developed in a, in a three month period. And this is about four or five years worth of what I would say traditional work in a three month period. And we got it done. Was it our absolute best work? Well, no, cause this thing was on fire and it was, you know, like it was just this massive, massive, massive project. And so there are those projects where you're happy to be alive on the other side. That was one of them. Uh, but it was really interesting pushing the boundaries of what was possible. How do we coordinate with vendors quicker? How do we negotiate the pricing? How do we make sure everyone has what they need? And now we've got five levels of project management instead of one or two with just the client, because I'm now we're responsible for multiple teams and those teams have multiple teams. And so that just put the pressure on in an, in an interesting way. Uh, I am here. So I did, I did live through the process. But, you know, would I do it again in the same way? Probably not, but it was a great experience. And I think it it sort of punches some holes in the in the company and the process and, and helps make a stronger overall uh, experience and that sort of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So what changes are you making in your business these days? So we are, we're in a, a phase of reinventing some aspects of what we do. And so we're particularly focused on seasonal hiring and onboarding, uh, starting a bit of a consultative branch where we help both diagnose those pain points, we come in and assess, we make recommendations, come to agreements, and a lot of it is really just this, this sense of discovery for our clients. And so we have solid questions to ask. A lot of people already know the answer. It's a matter of someone really listening to them, them being able to say it out loud and having that answer reflected back to them to where all the stakeholders can make a decision to better their process. And what we're finding with seasonal onboarding in particular is just that most people don't have a process. They use the same process they have for other situations. There's no additional increase in management, all these other little issues that crop up. And it just leads to a whole lot of stress because it's seasonal. Like you think of your CPA, mm -hmm. are you ever surprised that taxes are due on this date? Well, I've seen some CPA outfits that look like they're totally unprepared for tax season. And it's like, of, of all the companies and organizations, you ought to know what day this is and when the rush is coming. And every year, there's some, there's some places that just seem eternally shocked and surprised. And so it's really 
locating who's in all of this pain and who would like to experience something better. Mm. What if you experienced a sense of peace knowing that you had this great system set up? And so it's, it's working through that process that we're helping people kind of come to grips with those reflections, put them into action, create a system, implement the system. And then we go on into actually building out the onboarding and the training for that. And so there's all the different metrics that each company may want to focus on. No real one size fits all answer. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a long way of saying we're, we're adjusting a little bit into the consultative side of training and onboarding. That's a big part, especially with, um, with just a lot of things that are changing, I think onboarding becomes more and more of an issue. I think people are working less. They're, they're having shorter careers at at different companies. And so you're you have those situations where you're probably doing a lot more onboarding than than you would have 10 years ago or even five years ago, I think. Uh, people are, there's no stigma attached to leaving companies after two years. So people are doing it. They're looking for the next opportunity. So I think that um, onboarding is going to become a really important issue for for companies, for sure. Yeah, it's kind of a foundational element of something I would say everyone tends to go through. And depending on how often people leave, we've seen some industries with 120% turnover rates each year, mm. which I, I kind of blinked at that once and thought, how's that even possible? It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, it's <laughs> that's yeah. not good. Uh, but they exist, right? And And so upping the retention, upping the engagement. And sometimes they just don't even inform employees what it is that their job is before they're hired. And they're absolutely shocked at what that is. Like home healthcare might be one of those. Yeah. So it's, uh, there's a lot of opportunity out there for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. What final message would you like to leave to our listeners? They're listening in, hearing about a guy that started a company at 19, running it for 25 years. Everything's been perfect along the way. <laughs> what, yeah. what message would you leave for like the aspiring uh, entrepreneurs out there or other leaders who are listening into your story? Um, yeah. What would you like to say to them? I'd say the the bigger the cliche, most likely the more truth there is in that cliche. The just showing up, I can't stress enough how great that's been for me. Mm. Adjusting what I do based on what you might categorize as shame and just learning from those, getting rid of that sense of shame, not really having an ego about it, knowing when you're right and you're wrong, yep. not telling people so. All, you know, all those different elements come, come together, but a lot of it really was just showing up. I did not know what I was doing. I was the fake it till you make it guy. And I just kept showing up. And so, yeah, I, I get told that a lot. Like, you know, a lot of businesses don't last after their first year or five years or 10 years or 15 years. And now we're on 25 and it's never really meant something to me because I haven't been a part of a failed business. I've started three total. And I guess the attitude matters. The attendance record and attitude. There we go. It's <laughs> probably probably looking for something deeper than that. But if you find what you're passionate about and you bother to show up and you have a good attitude, and I think people resonate with that quite a bit. And I, th- I think you attract right. success. I think you're right. I think it's uh, you know I I what I love about your story is you you took action and you learned along the way, and I think so many people you know, go into analysis and they go in a deep analysis of how am I going to do this? What am I going to need? How am I going to pull this off? And I think a lot of times the best things we can do is move forward, take a decision and then adjust along the way based on, you know, how that works out. I know, 
I know I had my first CEO I worked for was that mind had that mindset. He, he said the worst thing you do is not make a decision. He says, make a decision, right or wrong, you're going to learn something, and then you correct and you make another decision. You keep making a decision, but it's the idea of showing up uh, and getting that learning. Whether it's a you, whether it's a win or a loss, you're going to get a data point and you mm-hmm. direct your action versus spending a lot of time in analysis and trying to figure everything out before you start. So I like the idea of sort of show up work hard, take action, make decisions and adjust along the way. It seems like that's been a lot of your, your success. Yeah. You don't, you don't know what you don't know. Right. And so how do you learn what you don't know? You experiment and you try something. And I'm, as I listen to myself saying this, I'm like, Eric, you should take this advice. I'm kind of in a little point right now where I'm over, overthinking some things and it might be sales copy. It might be this or that. It might be things that I'm just not used to doing on a day-to-day basis. And if you're like me at all, when it's for your company, it's like your baby and you analyze it and criticize it a little bit too much. When it's for a client, you can tell when it's good to go. And so breaking those barriers down a bit in my own head, taking my own advice, right? Sometimes you just kick it out the door and see what happens. Otherwise, you're never going to, otherwise it's a guaranteed failure, right? Yeah, yeah. Never know what happens if you don't launch it. I think it was the founder of LinkedIn who said, if you're not embarrassed by the first iteration of your product, you're not moving fast enough. And I think I've always felt that's a great, uh, it's a great mantra for small business owners and entrepreneurs is just move fast because you're going to get a data point. If, if it, Even if you fall on your face, you're going to get a data point. Like, well, that was a mistake. <laughs> yeah, we'll do that again. <laughs> yep, so, Absolutely. Yeah. So, well, it's been, this has been fantastic. Um, the company's called Clearly Trained. Uh, how can people find out more about, about the company if they're interested in doing projects with you? Sure. You can check out clearlytrained.com as well as on LinkedIn. I'm at forward slash Eric Bort, all one word, E-R-I-C-B-O-R-T. And you can see quite a decent history of some of our past clients, projects, all those sorts of things. Uh, and again, we will be shifting, rebranding, doing a little bit of that process as we get into the consultative flow and looking maybe a month out or so uh, to, to do that relaunch. But in the end of the day, we still provide those high-end custom e-learning style services and a little bit more. Well, fantastic. And if you need those services, and most of you do, uh, call Eric. Uh, go to Clearly Trained, uh, their website. We're going to have links in the show notes for all of Eric's resources. And I highly encourage you to reach out to Eric if you've got this uh, need in your company or if you're interested in how he's done what he's done over the years. Because uh, certainly he's got a great story. Um, you know, not many stories of entrepreneurs who've been running a successful business for 25 years. Eric, I really appreciate you coming on the the show and sharing your story, sharing your journey, because I think we all can learn a lot from your success. All right. Appreciate it, John. It's been a blast. Well, thanks again. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening to Deep Leadership. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share so we can continue to build a world with better bosses. Until next time, this is John Rennie saying take care and lead well. Thank you for listening to Deep Leadership. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all you do. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more information and updates, please visit our website at www.deepleadershippodcast.com or johnsrenny.com. Until next time, take care. Hi, I'm Lessa Cadet, host of Her Extraordinary Life by Design podcast, where we celebrate women who are shaping their lives 
one extraordinary day at a time. I speak with women from all over the world about what they do and how they are passionately pursuing their dreams and creating meaningful impacts on their communities. So come join us and learn about all there is to learn about these extraordinary women. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for season two of the Wanna Bet podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that season two starts August 18th. But I like Airplane. I know you do, but Wanna Bet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. So no more movie quotes. Roger, Roger. Electric acid.